Jesus and some thieves in uh, chapter uh, 5. It was really the Sabbath day that was the focus. Now here in chapter 6 is the Passover. So it's, <coughs> somebody read chapter 6 verses 1 to 15. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him, because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. What are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who received it. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This indeed the prophet, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Alright, so Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and John supplies the up-to-date term for our convenience, the Sea of Tiberias. And it says in verse 2 that a large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Now we talked about this idea some yesterday, <clears throat> that one of the sub-themes of John is the inadequacy of faith based upon seeing the signs. Now maybe we need to talk about that again and think about that a little bit. I think there's a couple of things that you see as inadequate in this faith based on signs. You can look back at chapter 2, verse 23 to 25. You can look at 448, perhaps even the implication of 443 to 45. And, uh, and you can see that Jesus is not impressed by the faith that's just based upon the signs. Now the idea of that is this. Some people were followers of Jesus for what they could get out of him. They wanted him to do something for them. They'd bring their sick. They'd want another meal or whatever. It was not really understanding who Jesus was and being persuaded of who he was by the signs and understanding what they really meant, it was more just the self-interest of wanting to have our needs and desires supplied by him. You also have the idea of just the, the people who like to see a wonder, you know, kind of like a circus performance or whatever. You had some of that in this. Now, it's not bad that people are uh, benefited by signs in a deeper way. There's a sense in which the signs provide evidence of who Jesus was. Jesus would say, for example, in 536, look at my works. My works are an evidence of God working through me. We'll see some other passages where he'll say that. So there is evidence value if you look at the sign and you analyze it and you realize that Jesus, you know, must be who he claims to be because he's got evidently the power of God working in him. Or if you see the deeper meaning. You know, the idea of a sign is that you look beyond the sign itself. You know, a, a red throat is a sign of tonsillitis. You know, the red throat in itself is not the big thing in that. You know, I mean, I guess you could get some sort of, uh, you know, drink or suck on something red and it would make your throat red. You know, it's not a big deal that your throat's red. It's what it points to. You know, it's an infection. There's some germs. You may need some, you know, amoxicillin or something that way. So that's really the, the thing that you look at in these signs. So there's value in the signs. It's not like that they shouldn't have been worked, but the way they looked at them. 
was shallow. Oh, here's another wonder, or here's Jesus who can do something for me. Questions or comments about that? Somebody asked me about that yesterday. Yes? I think that that's really important, the, the sub-theme of an, act, an attitude based on faith, because John's writing this a lot later than the other Gospels, because people are already losing their faith on this. And he's like, look, these people were only believing in signs, and Jesus thought that was inadequate. You don't have signs, and you need to have a faith that's really strong. Well, certainly, we do need that, and that's, that is something we'll see also later on in John, that... It shouldn't be that we have to see something to have faith. Blessed are those who have not seen, and they believe on the base of the testimony, and that's certainly where we are at. So that's a good point. Yes, very good. Uh, verse in this chapter tripped me up as I was going through verse 26, where he seems to be saying, you shouldn't follow me because of seeing signs as opposed to wanting to be filled. So I guess your explanation that the signs were important, that they should have wanted to see the signs, but not for the signs themselves, because of the I think so. You've got the same thing in the purpose verse in 2030. You know, therefore many other signs you perform, but these are written that you may believe. You know, signs can lead to belief and understanding, but when they followed for the signs, it was this shallow, what's in it for me, let's see another stunt kind of a thing. That, that's the distinction I make. Jake? Uh, it reminds me of a person I know who really believes he saw a miracle. Uh, it was a, a vision of Mother Mary, and I mean, he really, really deeply believes that, but it doesn't affect his life at all. Like he does, he's not a better person. He doesn't at all commit himself to the Lord for that uh, on any level. He really believes he saw something, but it doesn't really affect his faith significantly at all. Yeah, good point. I think we kind of apply that to to now and bring that to where we are with you know denominations and and those who try to bring people in, try to bring young people in and stuff with video games or or you know or with the Super Bowl parties or with something like that and 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 you know they're saying well we're just trying to get more people we're just trying to attract people but when if they if they got rid of all that they wouldn't still keep coming and we're going to see more along that line in the course of this chapter I think that is a lesson that we're really going to see in this good point so <clears throat> Jesus is there on the mountain, Passover's near, there's this big crowd, of course there's this big crowd, you know, they saw the signs, and they're following, so to speak, and the question comes to Philip, Jesus asks it in verse 5, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? Now Philip should have known perhaps where to buy bread, he was from the nearby town of Bethsaida, but really... This was a test for Philip, verse 6. And what's Philip's answer? We wouldn't have the money. <laughs> you know, why 200 denarii worth of bread wouldn't be enough? That's 200 days wages. I don't know what a good day's wages is these days, but, uh, you know, if you... You're working a skill, maybe a hundred bucks, two hundred days wage, that'd be twenty thousand dollars. You why twenty thousand bucks wouldn't buy no bread for these guys. Now think about Philip's approach. He looks at the need, he looks at the inadequate resources that he has, and resigns in hopelessness. Now, we can't do it. There's too many. We don't have enough. We can't do it. And Andrew steps in. You know, Philip shows how great the need is. Andrew steps in and says, yeah, we got a guy, kid here with uh, five fish sandwiches. That's basically what that amounted to. But what are these for so many people? So Andrew shows how small the resources are that they have at their disposal. Is that the way we look at things? You know, Jesus shows us a need and we say oh, I can't do anything you know I, I don't have this, I don't have that I don't have the other thing well Jesus was testing them and they failed the test Jesus says look get the people to sit down so they do and Jesus starts giving out the, the sandwiches and he keeps giving them out and keeps giving them out in the hands of Jesus just a little is more than enough and so not only 
does Jesus keep giving out the sandwiches to the point where all 5,000 men are filled, but they got how much in terms of leftovers? 12 baskets, one for each of the apostles. You know, in the, uh, in the feeding of the 4,000 recorded in Matthew and Mark, uh, they uh, started out with seven sandwiches, and, and the, uh, a word for a much bigger basket is used, and there were seven baskets, one for each of the sandwiches. You know, so they have way more leftovers than what they had to start with. Uh, now, this is a significant miracle, and you know that, among other things, this is the only one, other than like the resurrection of Jesus, that's recorded on all four of the Gospels. So this is considered to be significant. Jesus is going to use that as a springboard for some really important teaching as he goes on. So Jesus, uh, you know, Jesus does this. What's their reaction to this? What do they think? They found the perfect king. Absolutely. He must be the prophet. You know, we're thinking about the prophet of uh, Deuteronomy 18, and they want to make him king. Now, I wonder why they wanted to make him king. Absolutely. This is great. They're out to work again. All the, all the food you want. I mean, this is the kind of king they're looking for. Again, did they see the sign? Well, they were impressed by what happened, but they didn't, they didn't take it correctly. They weren't seeing, wow, he is God, he's powerful, or he can really supply our needs spiritually. That's not the kinds of things he saw in this. No, they saw in this. They just saw food. They have their own agenda, and their idea of the kingdom is food. So they want to make him king. What does Jesus do in that situation? Yeah. He withdrew. He's actually going to send the disciples away too. Probably pretty dangerous for them to be around a crowd like this. So he sends them off by ship. He goes himself up to the mountain to pray. Comments and questions on this story through verse 15. Frigger. I don't know if they also had any military ideas too, but I mean, if Jesus had any ideas of that himself, that was... What he came to do. I mean, here's 5,000 men ready to go. Let's start to a good army. Well, yeah, you know, people sometimes say that, you know, Jesus came to set up an earthly kingdom, a kingdom, but they think it's an earthly one, and the Jews rejected him. Well, if he'd, if he'd have wanted that kind of kingdom, they accepted that. You know, they, they were ready to make him an earthly, political, material king. That just wasn't the kind of king he really was. Other thoughts? Ben. When Mark reports this same incident with a very different focus, he mentions how Jesus asks, How many loaves do you have? And that's why you know, he's told, you know, we have this loaves the boy has these. And that's what the question for ourselves to ask. We're faced with things that seem overwhelming. We would just say, What do we have? We might be surprised. You know, if we've got ourselves hopeless, it's like you said, we're actually see the five loaves. We, absolutely. You know, when Jesus says to do something, we need to start with whatever it is we have and trust Him. He can provide whatever it is we need. Just take what you've got and use it. That, that's what He's saying. Comments and questions? Yes. Great. Um, in verse 12, when Jesus says, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost, is there any significance to that? Sure. Probably. But I'm not sure what. Don't waste food. <laughs> Other thoughts? Jim, you said similar things about his disciples later. Uh, the, the shepherd, and, and no one is lost, and, except for the son of perdition, things like that. I mean, that's the same language at least. So maybe this is a sign of Jesus keeping the disciples, preserving them. Other thoughts? Okay, um, 16 to 21. <laughs> and when evening came, the disciples went down into the boat, and up into the sea, and they entered into a boat, and were going over the sea 
to Capernaum. Now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them, and the sea was rising because of a great wind that blew. When therefore they had rowed about five and twenty or thirty furlongs, they beheld Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were afraid. Yeah, it's 21. Oh, sorry. But he said to them, It is I, not be afraid. They were willing, therefore, to receive him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. Alright, so Jesus has been up on the mountain uh, by himself, we know from the other Gospels, praying. And he sent the disciples across the sea in a boat. However, they've had some problems. There's a strong wind. They've been rowing. It's difficult when you don't have a motor on a boat to withstand the wind and make any progress. So they're not really. And Jesus sees them. And so what does he do? Yeah, he starts walking over there. They see him walking past and scares him to death. You know, what would you think? It's already really late, too. And Jesus says, oh, it's I. Do not be afraid. And he gets in the boat. And immediately they were able to get to the other side. You know, Jesus, if you've got Jesus in your boat, you'll get somewhere. Um, Jesus has amazing power. I mean, this is one of the most astonishing miracles. Just, it's just pretty tough to walk on water unless it's frozen, you know. Uh, so, so that's this pretty incredible. Maybe part of the point of this is this idea of when you have Jesus with you, you have safety and security. There's no fear needed. If he's with you, he'll take care of the storms and whatever else there is. Comments and questions about this story? Tim? Talked before about and he says it was nighttime or dark. Maybe significance here, in fact, it's dark. Maybe. I thought about that. Maybe so. Night, the night's dark until Jesus arrives and then the light comes. Roger. Um, one question. I feel like you know, the, other, uh, the other miracle was for the 5,000. This miracle is more for the, the disciples, was 12. And it's interesting that at the end, um, the 12 are the ones that stayed with him. You think Jesus did this miracle on purpose, kind of to confirm to them a little more than the other people? <laughs> Maybe. I mean, he certainly did some things with the 12 he didn't do for the others. David? Well, I hear it. It seems to interrupt the whole being a 5,000 and bread of life thing. So why is it here in the middle? Well, for one thing, that's when it happened. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> So, I mean, you've at least got that. And, and this is kind of part of the deal because Jesus gets over to the other side and, well, you know, what did he use? You know, it, it's kind of like he, he leaves and, and they didn't know how he got there or where he went, but they, they search after and they find him over there. And uh, so that may be something. I, there may be something better in the structure of this in terms of God organizing the events this way. I mean, certainly we're seeing Jesus as the one who supplies the bread, as the one who enables them to get to the other side, as the one that if you're with Jesus, then you are blessed, you are secure, you're provided for, and, and he's going to take that in a much deeper sense than what they are. I don't know, somebody got anything better than that? Picking up on the, Jesus being on the other side of the sea the next day gives him a very valid reason to say to the people when they come looking for him, what are you looking for? I mean, if they had all stayed on the same side of the lake during the night, you know, he says, what are you looking for? Well, I don't know, we just woke up. But they have to go look for him, and so when they do, he can say, why are you here? And really bring out the point that they're seeking him. Yeah, absolutely. They clearly put forth a lot of effort to get over there. They really want to be with Jesus, right? Well, that wasn't really what they wanted. Ben? And also, I hadn't thought about this, but they're about to face quite a storm, and they need to know that when Jesus is there, it's okay. Ben? Think about that. It just seems really strange, maybe, when you read that. 
he can maybe just put a piece in his pocket, you know, next time they need bread, he's going to have all the bread they need. And yet it teaches us that even the things without limit should not be treated casually. And we do that sometimes. God's got grace to cover all sins. God's got so much love, and you know, we just act like it doesn't really matter because you know, we never have to worry about it. And yet, you know, Christ here, even though he has this power, he doesn't just use it to make himself sandwiches for every reason. It's for a very specific purpose, and it should be treated very carefully, very seriously. Good point. Good point. Jody? Uh, maybe the contrast is, I'm kind of building up to what you said, you have disciples who are the, the real followers who are going to Jesus after this. They're in a storm, and they're unsafe, but Jesus comes and takes care of them. The crowds are safe, and they're just kind of frantically searching for more food. And there's a really big contrast there between the disciples who end up seeing Jesus deliver them and learn to trust in him as opposed to the crowds that are complacent and just hungry and whatever. Good point. Other thoughts? All right. So Jesus on the other side. Wonder how in the world he got there. Uh, 22 to 29. The day following, when the people would stood on the other side of the sea, he saw that there was none other boat there, save the one where two disciples were. And that Jesus went not with the disciples into the boat, but that his disciples were gone away alone. Howbeit there came other boats from Tiberias nine to the place where they did eat bread. After that, the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, neither his disciples, they also took shipping and came to Capernaum, seeking for Jesus. And when they had found him on the other side of the sea, they said unto him, Rabbi, uh, when camest thou hither? <coughs> Jesus answered them, saying, Verily, verily, I say unto you, You seek me not because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for the meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you. For him hath God the Father sealed. And when they said unto him, What shall we do, that we might work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that ye believe on him and sin. Kind of funny just seeing them puzzling over, Where did he go and how did he do it? And they, they, they get over there and they're like, When did you get here? But Jesus doesn't really even answer that as far as we know. That doesn't, it's not really relevant for them. He just challenges why they have come. He's so different than we are. You know, I mean, can you imagine you get a big crowd like this? You say, you're not coming for the right reason. You know, you get a big crowd like this, wow, so good you've come. Glad you're here. You know, Jesus, he almost repelled would be disciples. I mean, there were times, remember, like in Luke 9, where different ones wanted to follow him. He's like, nah, I think you really want to. You don't know how bad it is. You know, I mean, you know, it's, it's going to be tougher than you think. I mean, count the cost first, Luke 14. You better be ready for this. I mean, you know, we're like, oh, anything. What, what do I have to do to get you to get you in? And Jesus like, I don't, I don't think so. I don't think you really got the right motives. So it's just so counterintuitive to everything we would think or do in a situation like this. And uh, so, so he says, you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. You are thinking of the wrong things. Don't work for the perishing food, but for the food that endures to eternal life. That's the food you need. You know, they can't think about their souls. They're so busy thinking about their stomachs. You know, that's all they really care about. It's just feeding themselves. And uh, they, well, well, how can we work the works of God? So, well, you need to believe in me. That's what you really need to do. And they're, they're just trying to figure out something they can do to get more of these sandwiches. So, so their, their emphasis is totally wrong. Jesus is going to challenge that. He's trying to deepen their faith. He's trying to really get them to see the point of the sign. The point of the sign isn't, here's how we can feed ourselves all the time. The point of the sign is, Jesus is the one who can provide the bread we really need, the life we really need. Comments and thoughts to 29. That's all. Yeah, well, this one goes one beyond because first we didn't want them to just rely on signs. Now, they, now they've gotten one worse. They're relying on the benefit of the sign. So it's like even one step worse, and people will just go one step worse all the time. Which is really part of the idea of their relying on the science to some extent, is that self-interest in wanting it out. Um, 
Down in Florida, we had this guy come to our church. Um, he was, I guess, he lived down the streets or whatever. Um, and I guess he was wanting something. I, I don't think he was like he was wanting like God or anything real seriously. It seemed like he wanted food um, and stuff like that. And so we bought him a sandwich. But I think we concluded after that uh, that it might be best uh, just maybe to study with him or get a Bible study going with him. And we thought about like the passage in Acts where he was going to heal that man, the lame man, I think it was. And he says, I don't have money for you. So. Yeah. Well, I would say this. We need to separate benevolence from evangelism. You know, there may be times to be compassionate and help somebody out and need some. You know, if somebody's hungry, it may not be bad to feed them. Uh, in fact, Jesus would encourage that. But that should not be thought of as a means to try to get them in the door or a means to try to interest them in the gospel or whatever. Those are two separate things entirely. What is it, like, the connection, like, what is it, do you want to um, gather up all the food items today and all the treasures on earth, or do you want to feed on the word of Christ and get eternal life will last forever? That's the question. Yeah. Ben? Let's go back to Mark again, even over in John. In Mark 6, when Jesus sees the crowd, it says he saw, saw and he felt compassion for him. And he sat down and began to teach them. And he's told them for a long time which one they get in the situation where they need bread. And he does this sign and he takes care of them. But, you know, his compassion was a result of them being like sheep without a shepherd. And his answer to their need was he gives them the words of life. And they didn't see that. And they had trouble with that. And you get this whole thing here. But, you know, we, we get our compassion mixed up. And someone that comes and they're hungry, they need something, you know, and we're just like, we have all that compassion. And yet, there are people all around us who are like lost sheep. And we have found the shepherd, and we won't even say anything about where the shepherd is. Good point. Yeah, we need to keep in mind what really is important for people. Tim? Um, I like the treasurer uh, says, they ask, well, how do we do the works of God, basically? Even though the you know, things are going to change with the coming of the church and uh, it's going to be different at that point, nothing had changed. And there was they knew what they had to do, but they kind of belittled and didn't really want to do what God told them from the beginning. It makes us think, makes you think uh, today people think that you know being true to God is something super special. Like the Corinthians were all about the miracles, and Paul said, you know, love is really the best thing. You know, so today, like you know, when you are Miracles and signs and things like that. Um, the real work of God is just simple love, and that's what we can do that. So easy. Just the focus on that step. Good point. When our focus is wrong, our attitude changes. There's the um, verse 25 that started out calling them rabbi, and then in um, 28, uh, 8, and verse 34, they simply call him him or sir in verse 34 and then verse 41 it says so the Jews grumbled and then verse 52 then the Jews disputed and then finally in verse 66 and after this meeting the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. When Jesus preaches the effect that he has on us is determined by our starting point as to what we're looking for. If we're looking for what's real it would be the opposite of that. We would start out with the desire of teacher, of rabbi, but then we would end up being satisfied and happy. Um, but when they start out with rabbi looking for the wrong thing, they end up leaving. <coughs> it must depend on what we're really looking for. JP? What works are they expecting to do? I don't know. I think they're kind of curious, you know? work for the food which endures, so what are we supposed to do? You know, what are, what are the works you're expecting? We want this food. I'm not sure if they have an idea. I don't know. Dan? Is there any significance to this opening remark that we see time and time again, truly, truly, I say to you, I'm looking through the first six chapters, I see it pop up over 12 times. Is there any significance to this opening remark? It gives weight to the statement. I forget how many times it's used in John. It seems like it's 26 or something like that, but... Yeah, it's just saying, you know, this is a this is a, the the truth. This is a serious statement. It just it's ad, it adds emphasis. This actually the truly, truly, or the verily, verily. It's the same thing as amen. It's like saying amen, amen. 
you know, this, this is really the way it is. So it, it gives it more weight. <coughs> Good question. Great. Uh, the truly, truly, um, could that possibly even be tying back to what John says about Jesus bringing grace and truth? Or is that, that not really connection there? I'm not sure they would have seen that connection. I don't believe those are cognate words, so they might not have seen it that way. Mason? Um, yeah, I mean, I've heard it said that what the, the crowd is doing here is Jesus tells them something and they're trying to connect what he's saying to a reason for them to get more food. So he says, you know, if you really want to be fed, do the works of God. And so they say, okay, what do we have to do? Not because we want to do the right thing, but because we want to do whatever it takes to get more food. Right. And he says, you know, well, you need to believe on me and believe the signs that I do. Oh, signs, like feeding us. Yeah, so do more signs, you know. Um, and so it's like everything he says, they're, they're, they're twisting it so that it always comes back to what they want. And I think we have the tendency to do that too. Well, yeah, absolutely. And you'll see that all the way through this. I mean, they got a one-track mind. It's all food. It's all what they want out of Jesus. And what they want out of him is superficial, it's temporary, it's physical. All right, how about 30 to 34? So they said to him, What then do you do for a sign, so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of the heaven to eat. Jesus said, then said to them, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes out down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. All right, so they say, okay, come on, give us a sign. You know, we need to not have a sign so we can believe in you. What do you do? Now, is there anything that strikes you as strange about them saying that in verse 30? We just didn't. Yeah, hello. You know, what was that? Well, they've got kind of a suggestion about this. You know, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. You know, as it's written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. It's like Jesus could, cannot present any credential so conclusive that they wouldn't demand even a greater one. And so it's like, well, Moses, I mean, that's 40 years, you know, and bread out of heaven, and, you know, here's an idea. That, that kind of a sign might help us, you know. And Jesus says, well, you, you missed that. Um, you know, in the first place, it wasn't really Moses who gave you the bread out of heaven. That was God. And it wasn't the real bread. You know, the, the, the true bread out of heaven is what God gives you and gives life to the world. That's the true manna. So you don't really understand where the real bread is. And their answer is, go ahead. We want it. To remind you of chapter 4 and verse 15, Sir, give me this water. I don't want to have to come back here and draw anymore. You know, okay, give us this bread. They're ready for it. Comments and questions? Ben? I was thinking of Mark, or John's boy, again, and, and the way she wants the water there, so she's going to have to go draw it. And these people here, they want this bread because they, don't, they can always have bread. And those are things that we can't really identify with very well. We can't imagine having to walk to get water. Or, you know, into the other room. We can't imagine this, you know, not being able to go to Walmart and buy for a five dollars all the bread we could eat for a month. We can't imagine that situation. We can't identify with these hungers, and yet we bring other hungers to the Lord today. I, I think, especially the age of most of the people here, is young people. We're looking for something. We're looking for a purpose in life. We're looking for something that makes us feel like we're part of a group. We're looking maybe for that special someone. You know, we, we have these kind of things that we are looking for. And sometimes we're really coming to the Lord more focused on that than you know, on ourselves and what we get out of it and the feeling of you not know, doing something good than we are really focused on what does God want. Amen. I mean, I think that's a lot of this point. Why are we following Jesus? Are we trying to get something or are we trying to give ourselves to Him? And unlike today, people want more and people grab that 
God to them. They're like, why is it I want this, I want this, and I want that? Come on, look what Jesus gave us in that. No, that should be, that should thrill you, and you should be like, God, I'm thankful for what I have, not being like, I want this and that, and put the food in material as well. Amen. Patrick. Um, sometimes, I mean, we we can easily see the hypocrisy in wanting these physical blessings from Jesus. Um, but I think sometimes we even do that with spiritual things. Like, I want grace. I want forgiveness. I, I want these spiritual blessings. But a lot of us need to come to recognize that we can't we can't even be selfish in these things. We should want grace so that we can serve God better. We should want forgiveness of our sins so that we can please God again. And so even on a spiritual level, we need this attitude of service instead of this selfish, uh, self-motivated faith. That's a good point. I agree with that. Yeah. Very good. Michael. Pretty comical to see them quoting scripture to Jesus, especially to push him to do what they want to do. Again, this happens a lot today, but when you see it written, it just shows how. That is true. Quoting scripture doesn't always make you right. Good point. All right, uh, 35 to 48. begins and ends this section by saying, I am the bread of life. What does he mean by that? Why we need him to live. It's like the same thing to the Samaritan woman about the water. Now she he said, I, I can give you this everlasting great thing and Yes. He's the one that nourishes and satisfies us spiritually, permanently. He provides for what our soul needs, for what we really what we really should have. If you know, if you eat, you know, you ever you ever just been stuffed? You thought I'm never gonna get hungry again? How long does that last? You know, for most of you guys, you know, probably two or three hours, pretty well take care of that. You know, uh, but, but Jesus really satisfies us. I mean, here's the thing you see with people who don't have Jesus, and some of them are sitting right here probably. But what you see is they're always seeking something. They're always looking for something else to fill them up because they feel empty. Think about that. I mean, why do people turn to drugs and alcohol? Why do they turn to pornography and immorality 
And why do they fill themselves up with mindless, you know, whatever? Movies or video games or, or music or whatever. And that, that becomes their focus. That becomes what they're seeking because they're empty. I mean, what do you do when you get hungry? You eat. So we feel the hunger. We feel the void. We feel the need. And we're trying to find something to give us excitement, to give us a sense of fulfillment, to give us purpose, to give us life. We feel dead. We, we don't feel like we really found something that, that really satisfies us. But we're looking the wrong place. We're, trying, we're seeking something that won't give it to us. Jesus is the bread of life. He is the one that he who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. When you see people who still feel empty and are still trying, craving whatever garbage they can find to fill themselves up, you see people who haven't come to the bread of life. You see people who really don't have the Lord. If they had the Lord, they, they'd be full. You know, it, it, I mean, if you've ever eaten and just gotten stuffed, you've done that? A few of you have. Some of you guys probably never have. But, you know, if you've ever eaten and you've just gotten stuffed, what if just after you've just eaten the last bite you can possibly hold, somebody, you know, brings a big plate of your favorite food? You ever get to where I just can't hold another bite. It's great. I wish I, I wish I, I could eat it. But I really can't. I'm just stuck. You know, Jesus satisfies us. That's what he came to do. And that's what we need. He is who we need. They don't understand that because they don't have the Lord. They don't believe in him. They've not really come to him. And so they crave to get us some more food. We may crave other things, but we wouldn't be empty if we really had turned to Jesus. That, I think, is a really key thought in this. Now he says in verse 36, I said to you that you've seen me and yet you do not believe. They saw him, but they never saw him. To them, this feeding was a convenience. It wasn't a revelation. They, they didn't see him through what he did. They just saw the food. And so he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Jesus will keep those that the Father gives him. Now, there's a big point in this chapter about those the Father gives me. He says that in verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing. And uh, he's going to say that a few more times on through the chapter. Is it everybody that Jesus is going to attract and receive. Only the ones the Father gives. And we struggle with that. Would you like to find some evangelism technique that would enable us just to convert everybody? I think sometimes that's what we're looking for. What can we find that would attract the people that really aren't very attracted by Jesus. And we can come up with all sorts of things. But they aren't the people the Father's given. Jesus came for those the Father gave. What happened when these people without faith, these superficial people, left him? Did it shape Jesus? What am I doing? What's happened? Look at all these people who are leaving me. They aren't the ones the Father gave him. He wasn't losing any of those. He was losing the people that really weren't his because the Father really hadn't given them. So what we see is there's only certain people that the Father's given. Now, this is not some arbitrary, unconditional predestination where God just by his own whim picked out Person A, B, and W, and he rejected the others. This is the Father choosing people who have faith. 
people who are willing to partake of the Lord and come to see him and know him. He will say down, and we might as well go here for a second, just to kind of complete this thought. In 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. You can't come unless God draws you. How does he do that? It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who's heard and learned from the Father comes to me. God draws us in this teaching process. We are attracted and drawn by the Word, by the influence of God's Word on our heart and on our mind. We are brought to Jesus. That's how God draws us. The people who don't have a taste for God's word are drawable. I don't know much about fishing, but I think that certain kinds of fish go for certain kinds of bait. And so if you want a certain kind of fish, you need to put the right kind of bait on it. There's something to that, isn't there? Those of you who fish, not totally an erroneous thought. Well, God baited us with a gospel that only attracts them to And those that are attracted by that hear and learn, they are brought. And those who don't, they're not the ones the Lord gives. Now the question is, are we ones that God gives to Jesus? Are we the sort of people who have a taste for the true bread of life? Who, who hear and learn and are attracted by God's word or not? That was really the question for these guys. Now, let me pause there. There's a number of other things we're going to talk about in this section. We probably said enough to uh, pause and let you ask a question or make a comment. Salt? Well, God grants us repentance, and not only should we uh, thank God for that, but that's what we should be praying for for the people on the outside. That God grant them that He that God grant them the ability to come to Jesus. Yes, the desire. Yeah, right. Um, you know, you said in the beginning that Jesus is the bread of life, and that He's the one that sustains us and the one we need us. I don't know something that I've seen a lot is a lot of people that are Christian, and uh, and they're still empty, and they still feel that empty. What do you tell them? Um. Well. There were these people who came to Jesus here who were still empty. Coming to Jesus for some people means going to church, enjoying the social contact, having some sort of superficial relationship with Jesus. We must come to Jesus in the full sense that we believe in him, we trust him, we commit ourselves to him, we take him in and make him a part of us. Those who come to Jesus who still feel empty are like this crowd who've only come superficially. That's what I would say. John? I guess in your fish analogy, analogy um, the difference between us and fish would be that we, we can change what we hunger and thirst for, I guess, in that, you know, sometimes we aren't hungry after the gospel. You know, you know, there have been times where I guess a non-Christian might not listen or might not hear, but they change. Something humbles them, and, or they humble themselves, and now they have a hunger for the gospel. How about it? I like so much of the, the evangelism and the mistakes we make along the lines are, are based on the faulty view of what we see to convert someone to bring them to the Lord. You know, I mean, uh, if we're trying to attract them through secular means, I, I guess our view is that to save them, we just need to get them in the right building on the right times of the week. And so whatever means to accomplish that are going to work. But if we're really going to change someone's heart and soul, there's only one way to do that, and that's to present the word. And we're blessed to be the ones to be able to do that um, if we're given the opportunity. And so there may be a lot of ways to get people to be part of your church, but only one way to get them a part of uh, God's children. Amen. Good point. Like today, um, and like you were saying, like with um, worldly pleasures, people are like, how can I be happy? Maybe I can go to a casino. Maybe I can kill someone with something. And how can I find happiness? You know how? If you ever stop to stub people's stubbornness and read this Bible and you'd be happy, you do what God says. It's all right here. 
Very true. Ben? Another example to get us to look a little bit closer at ourselves is to think of how parents feed their children. You know, any of would love to have candy for supper, but for some reason, their parents would love to do that. And even though they're green M&Ms and green Skittles, those are not healthy. And you know, kids would love to have that. Spiritually, sometimes we come and we, we talk about so many things, and yet we're not eating the Word of God. We're, we're describing the flaws in other people, or maybe you know we're just making ourselves feel good. We, we call it fluff teaching, you know, the stuff that's just you know light and fluffy. It's like, it's like spiritual whipped cream. And that's all we ever eat. It's <laughs> a good lie. Particularly children, probably, I don't know a lot about this, but if you fed them non-nourishing food, they could get to the point where they're still really hungry because they were still lacking in vitamins and minerals and proteins and whatever. And they might keep eating because they were really empty, even though they were eating a lot, they were empty of what would really nourish them and strengthen them and help them. And, and, I mean, isn't that exactly where people are at today? It reminds me of Isaiah 55, too. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? And that's in the context where the Lord was offering wine and milk without money and without cost. Jesus has a very satisfying, nourishing spiritual banquet. And what are we doing? You know craving and gorging ourselves in empty stuff that never really satisfies us. And really, those kinds of things we need to think about a good bit. Ben? I just wanted to you on an earlier thing. Lots of us, when we first got out of the house, we realized well, maybe we can have candy for supper if we want. And Taco Bell is really cheap. I mean, all the bacon we want, and that's kind of silly, but at the same time, we do that. Yeah, the freshman 15 and so on. And people who get out from under their parents' roof start to abandon some of those restrictions, and we do the same thing spiritually many ways. We're eating a lot, but we're not maybe really focusing and growing from it the way we should. I mean, you think about, think about every carnal thing we seek to fill ourselves up with. Does it ever satisfy you? Doesn't it always just leave you wanting more? All that ever really matters is the next fix. The one you just had isn't enough. Because it doesn't satisfy us. It's just one of the ways we prefer our judgment of God. We don't, we listen to our hearts. We think, we think we know what is good for us. What is best for us. And we pursue that. And, and we, we fail in, in our satisfaction. Yeah, we really ought to figure it out by now. It's not working. Yeah, Grady. Um, another passage that uses this analogy of food in Proverbs 9, uh, it talks about wisdom has slaughtered her meat, mixed her wine, furnished her table, and then folly says, stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. Here, wisdom has all this food, and then folly says, here I have some, some bread and some stolen water. Um, and, and so many times we go after that bread and stolen water where truly God has a feast for us. We're just not looking good. Very good. Tell you what, good. Eric? I just had a question about what's the idea of nothing Well, I think the idea is he he keeps those who are truly loyal, those that the Lord has given. They're not going to leave. Now, there are going to be a lot of people leaving this chapter. There's not going to be anybody leave that are really the Lord's people. He preserves them. They weren't really his people in the first place. I think that's exactly right. They aren't the ones the Lord has given. So, Kelly? Oh. Joe? So, so, I guess, let's say, um, you know, someone believed and they stopped believing. They weren't the ones that the Lord gave. Not necessarily. Somebody can be and turn away. Think what was said earlier, we can change who we are, is true. 
You know, so there can be a change of, you know, our person. We certainly see that. You know, several passages saying that we can turn away from the faith in one sense or another. Dan? One of the hardest passages for me to apply in my life is do not cast your, your pearls before swine. That's not going to be what we're talking about here. Can you explain that a little more? How does this affect how we evangelize? How does this affect the people we talk to about God? Well, I think it affects in this way. The people who we teach the gospel to, and that doesn't do the trick, we shouldn't try to come along and sweeten the pot with something else that might be attractive to them because the gospel they're not really interested in. If, if we teach and they turn away, or they superficially are attracted and then they turn away, because they just don't really have that much appetite for the gospel, well, they're not the Lord's people. Do you ever come to a point where you, you don't love what you said as much, or you decide to slow down? Is there ever a point where you, you get up on that way? Or? I do, yeah. I've had, people, I've had people who were willing to keep studying with me, and I said, look, there's some public studies at such and such a place. If you want them, you can go but I'm not going to keep studying with you. Because you're not really in on You know. Amazing. Yeah, I mean, the example that Jesus gives in this passage is once the people that we are talking to have been presented with the truth that they need to hear and have been told what they need to do, that's the point at which it's up to them. It's no longer our responsibility to keep changing the terms or, you know, yes, explaining exactly. the same things over and over again. Once they know what they're supposed to do, then it's up to them to decide what to do. Yes, I agree. Let me tell you what I'm going to do. We're going to go a few more minutes. Some of you are sleepy, although I think all of you are doing pretty well with that. But I'm going to keep talking, but I'll give you a, a minute here. Anybody who'd like to stand up while we're studying this, let's go ahead and stand up. And uh, why, don't, why don't everybody stand up if you can for a second? It's going to be easier. As I always cast that the right way, don't you? And, uh, okay. Uh, and so, look at verse 38 while you're standing up. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. That was Jesus. He's a model of discipleship. He's a model of what we ought to be. That we, uh, Jesus, he was only seeking God's will. He was not seeking his own will, his own desires. It's a matter of trust and belief. It's a matter of just really seeking the Lord for himself. All right, now you can sit down now. Appreciate that. Um, and so, you know, and, and the Father's will was that he not lose any of those who are given. For this is the will of my Father, verse 40, everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. There's, who, who does the Father get? Those who behold the Son and believe in Him. Those that do not behold and do not believe, they're not the ones the Father gets. See, the Father giving depends on the quality of the person. The Father gives those who believe to Jesus. Those who disbelieve, the Father doesn't give. Now, there are these people then that don't really believe, but if you kept feeding them, they might still come. Or if you did something else, they might be attracted, but they really aren't believers in the sense that they trust the Lord and they take Him into themselves. That's really what this crowd was like. They were grumbling about Him. Because he said, he says, I'm the bread that came down out of heaven. I think he says that about seven times in the chapter. Uh, that he came down out of heaven. Or seven times he repeated that. And they're like, you know, we know where he comes from. How does he say he came down from heaven? Now one of the things that Jesus does sometimes in these conversations is he doesn't answer the objection. <laughs> Jesus doesn't say, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's just my earthly, you know, origin. I really came from heaven. He doesn't do that. Jesus does not have to answer every objection. Jesus has presented plenty of evidence to provide faith for those who want to believe. We are so often caught in this trap 
of feeling like we must have Jesus answer every single question there is or we won't believe. We don't operate that way in anything else. You know every single question about electricity? You believe in it? You know, there's a lot of things we believe in that we don't know everything there is to know about. There are going to be sometimes there are some, say, question marks in the Bible. There are some passages we don't know how to resolve a conflict between. Or whatever. Jesus isn't necessarily going to resolve those things. He just left this one hanging. Now, there's evidence. If you want to believe, you're willing to believe, you may not understand how Jesus fits having come from Bethlehem or having come from Nazareth as they often thought but there's plenty of evidence to believe it. so he just kind of leaves that hang he said don't belong to, uh, don't grumble among yourself this is all a matter of whether the father has drawn you or not have you heard and learned and come to believe and so he again says I am the bread of life you have to believe in me to have eternal life. That was the key. The connection with Christ. He's the one that provides the true eternal life. Comments and questions. Tim. You say about Jesus not answering every objection. I think one of the most interesting cases of that is when they're confused about, they're like, well, the, the, the Messiah was from Bethlehem. This guy wasn't born That's chapter 7. Yeah. Okay. And it, and I think it's like he doesn't answer that because you know they are right, they're coming from scripture. He doesn't even give them the one word answer to that. And that kind of confuses me a little bit. It just seems like it makes, I don't know, I, mean, I just have a little bit of sympathy that they obviously are hard and perfect. They know the scripture and they're just ignorant of a certain fact. And I don't know. I don't know. It's going to happen that way. I think that's exactly what happens. I mean, there are going, there are going to be some things that we don't know everything about, and we're not going to know how to resolve that. You know, the scripture said he comes from, Beth from, from Bethlehem, and yet he was a Nazarene. They didn't know how to resolve that. Did they have evidence enough to believe in him? Yes. Did they have every question answered? No. <clears throat> Think about this. This is an off-the-wall illustration in the sense that it doesn't have anything to do with John. But what about, say, 200 years ago, when everybody, all the scholars knew, what was it? I think Nabonidus was the last king of Babylon. Daniel 5 can't possibly be right, saying Belshazzar was the last king. And now we found like 37 texts that tell us that Nabonidus was away for whatever reason. And for the last several years, Belshazzar was the acting king. But 200 years ago, we hadn't excavated those texts. We didn't know that. And it looked like there was a place where the Bible and history were in conflict. Did God just send down a personal revelation to everybody who was troubled by that? No. Now, had, it, it, should that be enough to overthrow our faith? No, it really shouldn't. I mean, who knows more about the historical situation? What few historical records we have remaining or the scriptures? You know, we have plenty of reason to believe the scriptures, but not because every question has been answered to our satisfaction. There are some I don't know the answer to. I don't have to. I really think it's that, that it's important that Jesus set the pattern that he doesn't just answer everything they wonder about or everything that troubles their faith. You... You know, could Jesus have made it impossible to disbelieve? Intellectually impossible to disbelieve. I think he could have. I mean, I think he could have. You know, you ever wondered even like things in the Bible, like that people doubt and dispute. You think, now if he had just said it this way. I mean, you know, look, the question of infant baptism. Probably it's not a big troubling thing to you, but the people who believe in infant baptism, they really they defend that with scripture, you know, of sorts, and, and they make some arguments and convince them. Why didn't Jesus just say, you know, and you know, add another chapter of Romans or something and say, you know, thou shalt not baptize babies? Wouldn't that make it so much easier? You just wouldn't have that question anymore. And everybody would go, well, he could have done it that way. I mean, you know, he could have made it to where there was really no possible way to misunderstand him. He didn't. 
Why didn't he? Well, he, he gave evidence that if, if, if what you really are doing is sincerely coming to the scripture and see what it says, you can, you can understand. Could you misunderstand? Yeah. If you don't have the right heart, if you're not the, if you're not the ones the Father's given, then you're going to find your way around that for the sake of whatever. Really, God's approach to this tests us, tests our hearts. It proves the kind of people we are. Whether or not we're really willing to believe. Ultimately, it comes down to us. God gives us the choice. He gives us enough evidence, but not so much that the goats are attracted to. It's only going to bring the sheep. Other comments and thoughts? Yes, Michael. We, we judge people's hearts and we say, well, they have a good heart sometimes. We don't know the 37 companies in that. That even though we may assume they have a good heart, we don't know. But we know that Jesus won't cast out their That's exactly right. Who would have thought this crowd were not the ones God gave? Man, they were after him. They, they went, to great, went to great lengths to get to the other side of the sea just to be with Jesus. You would have seen them and you would have said, well, they're sure the ones God gave. Well, they weren't. We don't know. You know by ultimately whether or not they believe and continue in their faith as to whether or not they are ultimately the ones that are going to be given eternal life to. Other thoughts? John. Well, God's mind is so big, he knows so much, he can't tell us everything. Um, so I mean, he's revealed what he wants us to know. And I think it's almost the opposite today. We have people that they're just like, well, you know, we're not gonna understand it all. We just so they give up. And what God has revealed to us, he wants us to know. He wants us to strive after knowing him, and he wouldn't have told us if he didn't want us to know. Good point. Yeah. In what he has revealed, we can never fully have all the answers too. You know, I mean, you're so right. We're not going to have all the answers, and, and and people want to be in such doubt that they have to have all the answers, and we never will. And that's that's one of the reasons why he encourages us to continue to study throughout our entire lives and study with the right heart. Right. Yeah. It's kind of like an example, like you go on a hike with someone. And there's this map, tons of ways, and we're in the woods, and you and this person's been there like a hundred times, he explains it all. And I'm trying to tell you, I know the way, you should believe him. Same thing with Christ. He knows everything he knows um, how to do this. He's all knowing and and he knows which way to go. Why well, believe him? You should believe him instead of try to no, I wanna go this way. You just lose yourself. You need to trust the Lord. Amen. Alright, there's a lot more in this chapter and some pretty good, I think, applications at the end. We've been touching on some of them, by no means all of them, but we probably need to take a break. So let's break for about 12 or 15 minutes and...